You're listening to the Good Fight Podcast, where campus meets Christ. Welcome back to the Good Fight Podcast. Um, I hope the semester is starting well for all of you listening. My name is Artish Araguayas. Uh, I was a regular contributor on the uh, on the podcast last semester, and uh, this semester I'm serving as podcast head and also as moderator for this uh, uh, upcoming series, which I'm very excited about. The series is called Christianity 101, The Creeds, and it will be looking at the Apostles' Creed and at the Nicene Creed as basic statements of Christian doctrine that all major branches of Christianity, Protestant, uh, Catholic, and Orthodox, agree on. The goal for Christians is to give them an exposure to some of the basic doctrines of uh, their faith, in a sense to make the familiar strange or to present Christianity in its strangeness, distinctiveness in a fresh way. For those who are interested in learning about Christianity, the goal is to give them a sort of um, yeah, basic run-through of the fundamentals. Um, today, for this first episode, uh, we'll be looking at the first confession of faith in the Nicene Creed, which runs, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty. Now, this is a very strong statement of monotheism and naturally raises questions. Uh, I mean, these days we kind of take it for granted in the West, at least, that if we're talking about believing in God, we mean one God. But in the ancient world, this wasn't necessarily the case. And also, Christianity is not the only faith that claims to believe in one God. Um, uh, Islam and Judaism, respectively, have the Shahada and the Shema. And so I'm very excited today to um, introduce this conversation, which will be an interfaith dialogue among um, a Christian, a Jewish, and a Muslim um, speaker. And so without further ado, we, could we do a round of introductions here and get this conversation started? I'll start. My name's Rory Wilson, and I'm a sophomore here at Columbia College, majoring in history. And I grew up in Protestant Christianity, so I'll be taking that angle. Uh, I'm Zach. Uh, I am a first year at Columbia Law School. Um, and graduated from the college last year, um, and I grew up Jewish uh, and continue to practice Judaism. My name is Muhammad Khalil. I am a fourth year at the Columbia College. I am studying neuroscience, and I am an adherent to the Muslim faith. I'm part of the Muslim Student Associations Board, and uh, also pre-med, looking forward to applying to med school this year. Great. Um, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. And so, in a sense, let's continue this round of introductions here. Suppose I'm completely new to Earth, or new to the concept of God, right? Um, you would all say you believe in God, but who is God, right? Uh, could you introduce him to me? How would you go about doing this? Um, okay, so um, I would introduce God as um, the creator of everything, the source of all being, that, um, our Father, that as a, the New Testament says that God is love, that he is the source of um, perfections, of the um, things that we, that we reflect in our own nature, and that he himself relates to us through his son to bring us to full fulfillment of ourselves and our natures. Um, yeah, I think that uh, as far as an initial introduction, I think that a creator is an appropriate term. Um, I think, um, Ardashir, you referenced the Shema, which ends with, or it translates to, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Um, one being an absolute, not just uh, a single God, but just 
a single being and the only being and everything emanates from him. And I think that that is the easiest description. Um, there's sort of this distinction between uh, the physical and the spiritual. And uh, physical can be defined in terms of time and space and uh, the spiritual uh, sort of transcends those bounds and isn't confined by those bounds. And I think that that is the challenge in defining God uh, because uh, by definition, it's sort of an, he's sort of an uncomprehensible concept to uh, physical beings. I think it's interesting. We all started with the creator. I also did. <laughs> um, yeah, so the creator, the eternal, the one, the only. And I'll also talk about the shahada. Starts with Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah. I bear witness that there is no God, no one worthy of worship except God, Allah. Allah is the Arabic uh, name for God. And there's also uh, in the Quran and uh, in the Islamic tradition, there's 99 names we call God. And He's all these names at the same time and he embodies all these attributes um some of them are the most merciful some of them are the ever merciful some uh one of them is the most subtle the most um the also the the king so god has god is a complete um complete uh, being that is one and embodies the attributes of perfectness of eternalness and i guess that that would be my def like my introduction to a god our creator okay okay well all of those definitions are really interesting right you start with creator in a sense he's separate from the things he's created but uh, you know he's transcendent above anything in creation anything in this universe at the same time i think something you all touched on was that he relates to the things um, in his universe, right? Mercy, all merciful, right? Implies some sort of relationship that, uh, I guess my question here is, let's get a little more specific, right? Um, who, which, how to put this, basically there's, I mean, you kind of have a deistic concept of God sometimes where God is a creator, but then he kind of takes a hands-off approach to um, his creation, lets this, uh, you know, lets it just kind of run itself. But I think in each of the definitions you've offered, there's a sense in which he's a little bit more specific than that. He's a bit more particular. Um, yeah, Christianity, Judaism, Islam are all often described as um, Abrahamic. That that makes it specific to, you know, who is Abraham, for instance. We can talk about all these things, but how would you make this more specific? How does God relate to us? You know, what what are the hallmarks of his interactions with human beings? Or why does he care about human beings? Okay, to start off, since I, I think I gave a fairly scattershot yeah. <laughs> definition of God, uh, but... Within a Christian theology, you have the conception of the divine perfections, of um, ways we can speak of God. And those are traditionally divided up, at least within the Western church, between the communicable and incommunicable attributes of God. And the incommunicable would be his self-existence, that he is being himself, that um, the, he is the just purely action, he is pure actuality with no potentiality. 
um, that he is immutable, that he's unchanging, that he is infinite, and that he is perfectly one and united. So all of those are traditionally in Christianity seen as the incommunicable attributes of God that belong solely to him. So he is the, he is the sole self-existent being. He is the sole immutable being. He's the sole infinite being, and he's the sole perfectly united being. And that there, he still has other elements that are reflected in his creation and humanity and the communicable attributes of intellect of his will and morality and his sovereignty and power and his spiritual being where we are um, his creation his creators and humanity can be spiritual beings we do have some level of intellect reflecting his pure intellect we have some level of morality and will reflecting his and that we have some level of sovereignty or power in how we act over in the world reflecting him and I think that's a normal, that's a very traditional Christian division between that which we can see reflected in creation versus those things that he alone possesses. But all of which, all, all of those qualities, both incommunicable and communicable, are possessed to their perfection in God alone. Interesting. Interesting. So you're saying that there's certain aspects that God can relate to us because we share certain... Um, Attribute, or he's created us in such a way that we can relate to him or have certain attributes that reflect his. I'm just trying to formulate these thoughts, but what do you guys think of this? Um, yeah. Uh, um, I think that when speaking about um, the relationship between God and man uh, and really all creation, um, it isn't something that can really be separated. I mean, just like one where they throw a ball in the air, you'd expect it to fall back down. There needs to be a constant force. And that constant force uh, is even, um, even finds itself in creation, that uh, if God is the only being and the only self-existing being, the only independent being, uh, that means that nothing can exist independently of him. And if you were to make something and then sort of separate yourself from it, that is now existing independently. So uh, there cannot be a complete uh, separation. Uh, and then that connection finds itself in um, a purpose. What is the investment in uh, sustaining that creation? And um, I've heard it summarized in um, something called Dirabitachtoinam, which is like creating a dwelling in this world, uh, creating a dwelling for godliness in this world. Um, and I think that that uh, purpose sort of captures the investment in your question about uh, why maintain that relationship. Yeah, in, in terms of how, in terms of what God's relation is to us, I think in Islam it's also very focused on uh, God is our sustainer, our nourisher. Uh, we are dependents, and we are the poorer ones um, with relation to God, right? And there's also this concept in terms of how God relates to us that there's nothing like him. And at the same time, so, so what that means is while we cannot compare ourselves to God or we cannot imagine what God um, 
is or you know how god looks like or uh, god's being at the same time god reveals um in scriptures uh attributes of himself and what he wants from us and how he relates to us for example one of his attributes is al-latif so while while uh, the most subtle the most kind the most intricate in in way in i mean actions and so so while we cannot imagine um or comprehend god he is he himself reveals ways in which we know how we know how he relates to us we know that he is guiding our actions we know that he is responsible for the beating of our heart stuff that we don't even think about so god is always in control of our affairs okay Okay, there's so much in there um, to, to go further with, I think. Well, we just raised some points about scripture, about attributes, about you know God being in control of things. Before we get into that, I just want to have one more quick question on this point of God as creator, which you know might give us insight too into how we understand him. But just the question, why does God create, right? Why did he create? You know, is that a question we can ask or know the answer to? Um, yeah, thoughts on that? There is um, a Quranic ayah or a verse on this, sense where God is saying, I did not create the humankind or the jinn kind except to worship me. Right? Another verse is saying that um, we were created to be tested. Another verse um, says that. Do you think that we created you as a game, like for no reason, for no purpose? Um, so in all these verses, basically the, the common theme is we're here on this earth for a purpose. And, and that purpose is to worship God, to be grateful to God. Um, and uh, I, I guess that's... It's it can boil down very simply. Obviously, it can be expanded. Um, I think very similarly. Similarly, um, there uh, is a purpose, uh, as I had mentioned before. But beyond that, um, very uh, elementary purpose. I don't know if uh, one could. Uh, elicit or deduce a uh, more definite uh, reason or uh, goal of creation aside from um, sort of bringing godliness into the physical world. Um, and also um, in Judaism, there's this idea of sort of um, attributes of godliness uh, and uh, creation, the act of creating, um, is said to come from um, chesed, which is uh, kindness and giving. And um, I think that that is sort of a way to gain insight into creation, but I don't know if it necessarily distills what the exact purpose was. And I don't know if we as physical beings can reach that understanding of a godly intent. Uh, I would agree um, to some extent about our ability. Uh, there are definitely limitations uh, to our ability to try to understand God's will 
and what his intentions were for creation. But I guess uh, as Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork and day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose, vo- um, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes through out through all the earth, the idea of the, the heavens themselves praising God, and that man, um, as his image, is also meant to, uh, I guess, heed these words of praise to the Lord and to himself render praise, that um, the main end of creation would to be bringing more glory to God himself. Not that he is needing anything from us, but I guess because he is fully sufficient in himself, but that it, um, still the main end of creation is to render worship to him. I, I like that. Like worshiping God does not increase his glory or his kingdom in, in itself, but it's in Islam we have something very similar. It's for our benefit, right? Worshiping him makes us feel at peace. Worshiping us makes him feel like we're fulfilling our purpose. It's out of his chesed, out of his out of his kindness okay okay well thanks for that introduction i'm getting some i'm getting a picture here okay a god who is creator transcendent above creation but creates out of you know a sense of overflow um kindness uh you could say he creates um all things and specifically human beings um in such a way as they might worship him as they might be in relation to him give glory to him and uh Rory, you just referenced the book of Genesis speaks of humans being created in God's image in such a way as they can interact with him in this way. I would say probably for the most part, we kind of agree on most of this definition. And part of the goal of this conversation is to figure out, you know, points of agreement, but also points of difference, right? And so let's, let's wade into that a bit more, right? So we've talked about how does God relate to us, right? Um, and then I would let, I wanted us to think about then how do we relate to God? Uh, there's this strong, there's this language of being part of God's people. What does that mean? What does that entail? Are there commandments I have to keep? There's the language of covenant. We could get into that. What does it mean to be included in a covenant? Um, how do we worship differently? Um, what's the role of the scriptures? Lots of stuff here, but yes, what does it mean to be a part of God's people? Um, the people who worship God. And does everyone worship God? That's another question, but yeah. yeah. Um, I think, at least from the Jewish perspective, um, the covenant is with the Jewish people. And in fact, in the Torah, uh, Jewish people is not referenced. It's always referenced as Bnei Yisrael, the children of Israel. Um, so it is um, more than a nation. It is more than uh, a common people. It sort of has a familial quality to it. Um, and in that vein, uh, the expectations of the familiar members are different than the expectations of others. And uh, uh, the term chosen people often uh, levies accusations of uh, Jewish superiority or whatnot, but it's not uh, from a point of superiority. It is uh, uh, just uh, a greater number of obligations. There are 613 uh, commandments uh, in, the, um, in the Torah, uh, but uh, there are seven other additional compa- commandments for uh, Gentiles, the uh, Noahide laws. Um, so there is 
an obligation and an expectation of sort of um, uh, adhering to a godly will, or at least making the active choice to adhere to um, the godly will that is expressed through, um, for us, the Torah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. So, um, I think within Christianity, there, there is an understanding that all, all men are under obligation to follow the will of God and to, and falling under that is to keep, um, to act accordingly with his, um, standard of morality, not for, according to our own will, uh, with, uh, and then there is the understanding of, I, I don't know whether this is the terminology used in all traditions, but a term that I've heard is the covenant of grace, the covenant of grace that um, Adam and Eve would, themselves would have been a part of, and in their rebellion and sin against God, um, broke that um, relationship between mankind and God, and it, um, that all who keep, truly keep his will um, throughout history are part of this covenant of grace, and that, um, that might, and that, I guess that would be, then there are some more specific covenants. Um, in Christianity, uh, we believe that um, there was a covenant with Abraham specifically through which there was a promise to bring about um, salvation to all nations, through which, um, through Abraham, all nations shall be blessed. And that, uh, that is still a, a, just a broader promise for the covenant of grace of salvation to all people. Okay. We'll go on uh, just to anyone listening. Covenant's a big word, but uh, what's a good definition for a formal promise, way God relates to um, humankind? Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it's, it's very formally the language almost of contract, of promise that uh, is often used. But yeah. I guess this one does get at the differences here. <laughs> um, I guess uh, what I would say, first giving some background, as, as Muslims, we believe all prophets and messengers, so whether that be Adam, uh, Noah, Moses, and we believe Jesus uh, as well as a prophet, um, or Muhammad, uh, peace be upon him, the last messenger, all came with one message and simple message. To worship God alone and uh, alone like himself, one and alone. And that is reflected, um, I think, you know, in the fact that we all have as our traditions like branched off this underlying uh, concept of monotheism, right? However, uh, what, what differs here is we believe for example, Bani Israel, or the children of Israel, Israel, were given a contract, and uh, they could not fulfill it. We believe that the Christians themselves were also given um, a book, a scripture, and they could not preserve it. And so what happens is, as these people get their messengers, they slowly go astray, like over time, right? They can't preserve their works. And that, that prompts God to send a new messenger, someone who comes back with the same message that all the original prophets and messengers came, uh, came with, to worship God alone. Uh, and based, based on this, 
we we believe like all these prophets um were preaching this same message albeit different like details in terms of the laws and the jurisprudence of the time so that's that's the basic background um as muslims we believe that the quran is the word of god um a famous i guess like instagram quote i've seen is like if you want to speak to god go pray if you want god to speak to you read the quran right read the the the, the word of god um and the quran outlines everything for us it's literally termed in in itself as uh, guidance so we relate to god by following commandments in the quran by reflecting on stories and the mor- the morals the morals and the lessons that we get um from the stories of the prophets and the messengers as well um and we relate by hearing a, we relate to god by um hearing his words about heaven and hell and uh, what the eternal reward is and we relate to him by hearing his attributes and how he describes himself in the quran the one who is forgiving but at the same time the one who holds us to account the one who has prepared for us a beautiful um beautiful reward but also a severe punishment so our relation to god comes by reading the quran and our our relation to god is based on what he tells us specifically in the quran okay okay lots of questions here it's um a lot to think about i guess so from within the um christian perspective or assuming i as moderator i'm taking like again this perspective of someone who's new to this whole idea of god any of these um different religions they're completely new to me um one thing I will see if I look, say, at the Christian New Testament is they do talk a lot about some of this idea of commandments and stuff, but they seem to have discarded a lot of that as well. And I will see in Judaism and Islam a lot more emphasis on certain um, commandments, uh, apparently rituals and things. On that note, I mean, how much similarity is there? Are like um, halal and kosher, are there similar guidelines there? I'm just curious at this point. But we can eat kosher food right but we cannot eat halal food so i think that the slaughtering might be separate but i'm not super uh informed on halal practices yeah for for us we eat um we eat meat from the people of the book as long as it was slaughtered in god's name gotcha gotcha okay that was just a, a point of curiosity i guess here um i guess another way to get at this then is Suppose so, I'm this person who knows nothing about each of these faiths. How do I become a Christian? How do I become a Muslim? What do I need to do? Is it, Zach, is there a sense in which I can become a Jew? How does that work? And yeah. Um, uh, sure. So yeah. um, primarily, um, Jews are descended through matrilineal descent. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a conversion process. It's very strict because as I mentioned before um it is seen much more like a family than a sort of uh people of a shared faith in the sense that it's uh not something that you necessarily need to uh subscribe to if you weren't born into it um and also uh there is are other commandments for people that are not jewish so it is not uh a uh you need to be in or you need to be out. Um, 
and uh, it's viewed very much on the soul level. Um, going very deep into sort of Jewish mysticism, there's a concept of a Jewish soul versus um, a, a Gentile soul, and um, so conversion sort of uh, takes the view that that soul either exists or uh, the uh, uh, origins or uh, not to use a mistaken term, but like the genesis of that soul um, has sort of found its place. Um, so it's a very supervised uh, process um, that uh, requires a lot of commitment and um, a lot of certainty on the part of the um, rabbin, the rabbis that are sort of um, overseeing the conversion. Gotcha, gotcha. And I mean, on the level of like specific things going on, I mean, uh, a lot of the language of specific rituals, you know, uh, Christianity d deals with this again in the New Testament. What happens to, say, circumcision, for instance? What happens, you know, we'll talk a little bit about baptism, things like that. What are the specific things I need to go through or do in order to be marked as a member of this people? I guess that's the question I have here. So, um, I guess within Christianity, one needs to uh, repent of one's sins and be baptized, believing in the name of Jesus Christ and his death for your sins so that you might be reconciled to God. And that's, that's the need that you have to become a Christian. And I think you're right, Artish, here to point out how there definitely is a different emphasis on commands and fulfilling laws between Christianity and Judaism and Islam, where, as I think Augustine has a very good encapsulation of this in his ordering of loves, where uh, you, you, have this, you have this idea that all men are sinful, that we all are inherently sinful and separated from God due to that sin, and that we fundamentally have a misordering of our loves, that we do not truly love God above all things, and that it needs to be through the work of the Holy Spirit and repentance from our sins that we reorder our loves so that we are in right relation to God, and that through Christ's death, our sins are atoned for, that there is atonement through his sacrifice, so that, um, we, that God is being fully just while being fully merciful. But in that emphasis on the soul's relation to God, and his complete love of God and love of his mercy and repentance and repudiation of his sins, those actions that he did that, um, in which he was seeking his own desires and not God's will. And there is uh, definitely less of an emphasis on the need to fulfill particular concrete obligations that those are perhaps there are obligations in this life that must be fulfilled you must, you should as a christian um worship in church you should as a christian um care, love your neighbor and care for your neighbor and this gets into protestant catholic distinctives where i'm definitely taking the more protestant tradition of that you have a f overflowing of fruit of good works to manifest the reordering of your love to god um, that you are not being justified before God by in nature of you doing good things because you are never going to be able to satisfy God's perfection out of your own strength, that it must be through um, the, the atonement, through the sacrifice of his 
perfect sinless son on the cross that um, the sacrificial system of the temple and the law of Moses is fully manifested. And so that there is atonement for sin that you, um, yeah. Okay. Okay. So there's this, and so the value say of baptism is sort of representative of that as a sort of, this is how you become a Christian. Typically you'll be baptized into the church. The value of that is to represent that kind of change of heart, mm-hmm. that new new life. Yeah, that newness of life, when Christ okay. says to Nicodemus that one must be born again, okay. that there's a, a rebirth through the Holy Spirit, through the work of God. And again, this will differ slightly in emphases, and its emphasis across different traditions, but I right. still think in general baptism is supposed to be sure. this newness of life in which one is reconciled to God through Christ. Right. Um, through his Messiah's sacrifice and atonement right. for sin. Right. But there's a sense in which some of the ceremonial requirements, as you said, are kind of fulfilled or no longer, um, no longer required is mm-hmm. what's going on in Christianity. Where, yeah. Okay. And I guess this will get to perhaps a very big difference between Christianity and Judaism, where uh, when Jesus says he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right. that there is a sense in which those laws are still um, standing, but they are being, they are, they are manifesting in a different form, in the form of Christ's sacrifice, which in practicality, Paul does talk about it in language of abolition okay. in Galatians. So there is a sense in which they're abolished and that it's not to be um, fulfilled in the same physical manner, but it's not abolished. It's fulfilled in a way that it is more f- truly manifested in Christ's sacrifice for sin. Sure, sure. I see. Okay. Muhammad, what are your thoughts and how do I become a Muslim? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on what was just said, but first I'll start with the, how do I become a Muslim. So, I mean, essentially, you can think of creation maybe in like terms of living things as three categories angels humans and animals for example right the angels are known to be perfect right they don't have a choice whether or not they can obey god um and they have intellect at the same time the animals are known to be uh, succumb to their desires right they don't have an intellect to control themselves meanwhile the humans are given something called the choice a choice right they have intellect and at the same time they have desires they can disobey god's um god's want from them right god's purpose in creating them but they they cannot disobey his will right Uh, everything succumbs to god's will but god desires for us to be good human beings someone can be a bad human being right so what I'm getting at here is innately human beings have a, a wrestling of their desire versus their intellect. In Arabic, we call the desire the nafs, right? They have this wrestling where we're trying to be, you know, good human beings and our desires are always wrestling with us. And God knows that we can never reach perfection. God knows that we're not angels. God knows that we will make mistakes sometimes. So as a Muslim, God never desires 
perfection from human beings, right? God knows we're going to slip up. What God wants from us is always to turn back, always to surrender back to him. And this is, this is where I'll make my central argument. Being a Muslim, the, even the definition of Muslim is someone who surrenders to God's will, someone who surrenders to God's purpose in why he created us, right? And quite simply, it consists of just saying the shahada and living by it, acting by it. Knowing that we'll slip up. The shahada is, Ashhadu an la ilaha illallah. I bear witness that there is no deity worthy of worship except Allah, God. Wa ashhadu anna Muhammadar Rasulullah. And I bear witness that the Prophet Muhammad was a messenger, is the final messenger of Allah, right? And he came, comes with the message of God. He comes to explain to us what God wants from us. And his teachings, his practices, the scripture revealed unto him from God is what we follow in order to be Muslim. That's basically the basics. Um, in a more, I guess, expansive answer, there's also types of faith, right? Someone simply can do the bare minimum, right? Um, the, the, there's, I guess, I would say five pillars of Islam that we should do. Um, the shahada, bearing witness that there's no God except God and bearing witness that the Prophet is the final messenger. Then there is um, the prayer. There's five daily prayers we do in our day to take, you know, to take a break from the day, to contemplate God's existence throughout the day, um, to always have a way to go back to God as the day progresses. Then there is fasting Ramadan. Ramadan is basically a month where we um, push our desire for food and water, some of the most essential things we need in order to worship God, right? We don't eat from dawn till sunset. And the theory and the logic and the spirituality behind that is if we can push down the desire to eat and drink, we can push down the desire to disobey God as well right we can um we can you know fast from bad habits like fasting is not just from food and water fasting is from everything that displaces god and then there is uh paying alms uh, the zakah and this is uh annually something that we um give to the people who are uh less fortunate than us in order to make sure that our wealth is not accumulating and staying away from the hands of people who really need it, right? Um, and then there's Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. And this also comes with its own traditions. But these are the five um, pillars of being Muslim. Of course, to be Muslim, you don't have to do these immediately. Some of them come at later times in life, right? If you're Muslim, if you became Muslim outside of Ramadan, you don't have to fast until Ramadan rolls around, right? But so I would say in general, being Muslim just consists of bearing witness that there's no God except God, praying five uh, times a day, and following what was revealed unto the Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, and loving God as he deserves to be loved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
Very interesting stuff there. Zach, Rory, any, any thoughts, anything, you know, any similarities you want to talk about, any differences you want to uh, zoom in on? No. Um, I can speak briefly on it. Um, I don't know if there's something akin to the five pillars that you were discussing, but we do have the 613 um, mitzvot, the commandments, um, that sort of touch on similar things. One of them being tzedakah, which is like charity. Um, one of them, uh, and um, as I think Roy alluded to earlier, some of them can't be accomplished now. There's not an expectation to accomplish them now because um, they are required to be done in the temple, which uh, since 70 AD um, has ceased to exist. And uh, we are um, constantly looking forward to um, its um, rebuilding when Mashiach, when the Messiah comes. Um, but, um, and that throughout the year that is um, continually uh, mourned the destruction of the temple uh, because uh, there is this um, emptiness, this inability to um, reach the potential that was set out for us because um, some of them are limited by space, uh, by location. Uh, yeah, I don't know. That was sort of some similarities that I picked up on. Um, I think uh, you can definitely um, point to ex requirements within Christianity that if you are practicing the faith in accordance with the scriptures, with accordance um, with the entirety of the scriptures, one ought to be baptized. One ought to um, confess one's sins um, to God. Um, and then also, if, if you're Catholic, then to the priest through the church. Um, then one ought to partake in um, the Lord's Supper, the commemoration of Christ's death for our sins, and that um, one should be going to church um, and performing, like should be actively reading the scriptures, meditating on the scriptures, praying, living a life of prayer to God, and um, try and manifesting love to one's neighbor. Of, and that could be through alms, that could be through giving, but also in just other acts of kindness um, throughout, um, throughout one's life. Those, so I definitely see similarities, and there are, expect, there are requirements that are expected. I think um, there is definitely a distinction between um, how they're viewed in Christianity, say, with, then with, with Islam, because that's much more of a sense of this is what makes you Muslim. Would that be correct, that performing these requirements is what means you are Muslim? Yeah. Yeah, where, um, I guess, I don't know, there's still, as opposed to at least uh, for, for many Christians, the idea of what makes you a Christian is that initial um, rebirth in the Holy Spirit, that you are being reconciled to God, and these things are subsequent to that as manifestations of that. I think that that might be the biggest distinction from Judaism, is that there's no sort of um, requirement either in act or belief uh, uh, to sort of uh, be classified or to be considered a Jew. Um, it is something that is, as I said previously, sort of um, rooted in the soul. And that uh, is uh, irrespective of um, one's conscience or one's, 
one's uh, daily activities. Uh, once you are a Jew, even through conversion, uh, uh, that sort of is absolute. It can't be taken away. Even if you were to convert to a different religion, uh, we still consider you Jewish. Uh, and that may be why uh, conversion is so strictly supervised, um, because it is something that is irreversible in the eyes of um, halacha, of uh, Jewish law. That's interesting. So, I mean, hypothetically, first, I mean, I assume, based on like what I've heard about your religions as well and what I've studied, there is this concept of an afterlife, correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. So, all you have to do is believe, for example, of um, the resurrection in Christianity and be Jewish in case of Judaism and you can live whatever type of life you want to live and you will you still be guaranteed this idea of reward or salvation? Um, if I'll, I'll start where um, if one has true faith in the death, burial, resurrection of Christ for the salvation of sins and one is truly repentant of one's sins before God, um, then I guess it would be yes, that even it, that it would be possible for you to be a very bad person your entire life and late in life come to a true faith in Christ and God and, and true faith in God and uh, repent of your sins and be saved that um, even if, uh, but it has to be a true submission and repentance. It's um, somebody I think I'd want to make the distinction. The mere profession is not the same as a true, um, like a true faith of the heart, a living faith. Right. Um, right. One thing I have heard is the gospels present us with a picture of Christ on the cross and the two thieves crucified on either side of him. And one of them calls out to him and, you know, believes in him. And Christ says to him, this day you will be with me in paradise. And I once heard it said that, you know, one thief was saved, that no one might despair, but only one so that no one might presume, right? So, so this idea of that faith is necessary, but that faith will manifest itself if it is genuine in a life of, um, you know, increasing good fruit, as Rory has been saying. Yeah, but, an increase in good fruit, yet um, due to the perfect righteousness of God, um, the fact that we are sinners and that we do make mistakes, as you were talking about means that we will never be able to truly satisfy God's justice because um, when uh, there is a conception of the final resurrection and the judgment day in which um, all <laughs> one's deeds will be judged before God, um, it's not a matter in Christianity of whether you did more good than bad because you could, you could live a life of uh, relative righteousness, yet if you committed a grave sin against God, then it would be just for you to deserve punishment for that. Just because you did other things doesn't make up for that. And it's only through an atonement for sin that one can be um, freed from that penalty. I think for us, uh, there's much less emphasis on uh, an afterlife. I mean, there does exist the concept, um, but I don't know. Uh, if there's uh, as much focus on um, a calculus or a requirement 
to um, achieve something in that afterlife. I think it's the concept of the afterlife is much more abstract. Um, and really, um, it's about um, bringing godliness into the current world, not into the uh, future world, because that will come. Uh, and um, uh, the messianic age, the when Mashiach arrives, um, but uh, there's no real sort of uh, expectation or uh, anticipation of uh, an afterlife based off acts in this life. I don't know if that um, is sort of like a calculus type scenario that sort of translates. Yeah, uh, that's really interesting stuff. I guess there were two points I did want to touch on kind of going off this. Um, I mean, we've kind of touched on this already. Uh, within Christianity, there's this whole, we often use the language of sin. You know, what is sin? Is there a, compar is there a comparable concept? Is it the same thing? Is Rory spoke about disordered loves, which is often one way Christians think about what sin is. Um, is there something between us and God? Is it a question of um, the will, uh, as Muhammad brought up, you know, the, cho the choice to disobey him? Um, yeah, what, what is this thing called sin, or um, is there a different language we would use to talk about it? Yeah, I would say, I mean, sin is anything that goes against what God wants from us. And I have to say, wanting and willing is different. Um, God in the Quran says he wants for us to believe in him, right? And to do good. And he does not want for us to disbelieve. But then also willing is whatever gets executed, right? So there's always uh, whatever whatever God wants from us is good. Like what we do is good. And then going against God's want is um, harmful for us. But I think it goes deeper than that. Whenever sin is described, it's described as something against ourselves, not against God. Um, in a very famous verse, uh, Allah, God says, قُلْ يَا عِبَادِيَ الَّذِينَ أَسْرَفُوا عَلَىٰ أَنفُسِهِمْ لَا تَقْنَطُوا مِنْ رَحْمَةِ اللَّهِ Say, like he's telling the Prophet, to say to my servants that have transgressed against themselves don't despair of the mercy of god uh, god forgives all sins um and god is indeed uh, ever merciful the most merciful and so i, I think something that i would want to say is that sins and uh, things like that are emphasizing the Quran to to be a concept that whatever we do that God does not want is actually harming us, hurting us. It's in God's wisdom that He creates commandments for us. Just like very famous example of the car and the manual, right? God does not leave us without commandments, just like the car manufacturer does not leave it without a manual. Don't put diesel in a gasoline-run engine, right? So don't worship anyone except me. Um, in terms of Islam, very famous laws. Uh, don't despair of my mercy. Whatever you do wrong, don't think that you need anyone else. Um, 
to try forgiving you. It's between me and you. I think that's a very important uh, distinction as well in Islam. Everything's between us and God. Um, and so these commandments are actually for us, right? Like I said earlier, whenever we sin, we do not, and this is also in a narration from the Prophet, we do not detract anything of God's kingdom. And whenever we do good, we do not add anything in it. And so sin is seen as a transgression against ourselves. And it's basically not sinning is basically the best way that we can live our lives. Can that ever be achieved? No, but God does not expect that from us. God expects us always just to come back. Yeah, I don't think uh, we use the terminology of sin in its typical um, English connotation, but uh, uh, a sin uh, would primarily be uh, a violation of any of the 613 mitzvot, uh, and some of those are positive, some of those are negative. So uh, don't do this, do eat this if you do the opposite. I think that that would um, be the best qualifier as a sin. Uh, uh, or analogous to a sin. Um, but like Muhammad said, there is um, an ability to repent and to atone, and that uh, is even prescribed into our calendar each year. It's actually coming up uh, like the Day of Atonement, uh, Yom Kippur, which is the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, is next week. Uh, uh, so I think that there is sort of the, uh, the presumption that it can be rectified to some extent. So I, I like what Muhammad was saying about um, sin being harm against ourselves, where uh, I think Christians would agree to some, uh, to some extent that we cannot harm God tru truly in our sin, that it is much more of a harm towards ourselves, and that living in accordance with his moral law will produce more flourishing that it is the manual to a good life to some degree but um i think there definitely is distinction um where i think um, one could really make uh, i'm not sure if this is how most christians term it but it's definitely reducible to idolatry of what is one um rendering worship to or serving what will are you serving where if someone is looking for fulfillment out of something that is separate from god whether that is one's own lusts one's own desires one's uh career one's family that all of those um that sin is either looking to something else other than god and not truly worshiping god as god or um, just straight rebellion from him. And uh, like there, it's possible for people to do either of those where um, sometimes one sets up their own will against God's intentionally because they choose themselves instead of God. And that's uh, kind of the ultimate satanic sin in Christianity of looking to oneself as the definer of meaning and of good for your own life as opposed to um god's right. will yeah yeah um and a point i was 
yeah, we've all kind of raised the point that in a sense, the sin is often, you know, a harm against ourself. It doesn't in some sense detract from God's essential nature. I think something within the Christian perspective, particularly though, is that though God need not be affected by our sin, so to speak, um, there's this Christian conception of love as sacrifice, whereby um, in God's love, in a sense, if we look at the cross, we cannot say that God is not affected by our sin, that it did not come at some cost to him. So let's actually delve a little bit into that. Um, I think this is a major point of distinction, this whole idea of Christ, um, this language of Son of God, which, you know, is it beautiful? Is it blasphemous? What, what's going on here, right? Um, then we could go into this language of the incarnation. Who is Jesus? Who is Christ? This is called Christianity 101, right? And even the conception of the Trinity. But yeah, I want to I want to hear your thoughts on all that. Yeah. I mean, for now, I guess the main question was uh-huh. calling Jesus son of God. Yeah. Yeah, we, as Muslims, it's a huge... Um, a huge blasphemy or in the Quran it addresses this in very very many points um, they said that the one the most merciful has taken um, has taken a son and then God responds to this by saying uh, you've certainly made an outrageous claim. The heavens are about to burst. The earth is about to split apart. And the mountain is to crumble to pieces from this claim. As in, I mean, everything worships God, right? And, and I guess also the Christian uh, paradigm, as we were saying earlier. Everything sends praise to God. And so when they hear such an outrageous claim, this is the effect that it has on them. So we, we, part of our, I guess, I've heard this term being used like pristine monotheism, is that we don't, we don't split or give any humanly attributes such as begetting and being begotten to God. Um, we don't give dependent attributes as of son or i mean i i'm not too sure about the father that could go in many ways but for now the son to god this this would be seen as something that is unbefitting of god's majesty no um i think similar similarly i mean none of our uh because Judaism sort of predates, um, we don't have a direct address in either the Torah or um, any of the commentaries that I'm aware of. But um, I think that, like Muhammad was saying, that it sort of this splitting and um, constraining of God into sort of a physical being uh, sort of violates uh, the principal tenet of Shema, which is uh, Hashem Echad, uh, God is one, the absolute one. Um, yeah, so uh, I think that that's the extent of an answer that I could give, just because we don't have that much that speaks on it. Um, what I can say is we're still uh, waiting for Mashiach, we're still waiting for the um, fulfillment uh, of 
uh, the messianic age. Uh. Yeah, so um, clearly this is a very major point of division. Uh, I think it is the major point. It is <laughs> the major point of division where um, there, there is an understanding of the Trinitarian nature of God being a mystery, where God is, tr- God is transcendent, he is uncreated, and there are aspects to him which we as limited beings cannot fully understand. And one of those is his perfect unity while having um, perfect love in himself. And that there is um, the distinction of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit of um, the, fa- the, so- the Father eternally begetting the Son and the Son uh, and the Spirit pre- processing from Father and the Son. There's a, there are distinctions within God while he is perfectly united, where he, while he is perfectly one. Um, where I th- and Christians are very, very loath to make dis- any sort of distinctions apart from what is specifically believed to have been revealed by God in his scriptures, so that there is a mysterious nature to God himself taking the form of a man and dying for our sin, where there is, Christ is God, yet he is also man, that there are two natures. It's not as if um, God has in some way mixed his nature with man, but there's still a sense in which God has come down among us to save us through his mercy. And I, that there is a level of mystery to to that where how does the the infinite transcendent relate to the finite directly in that way how does he become present with us himself um and so i i don't want to shy away from saying that it is a mysterious thing within the christian faith and that people do not want to go beyond what is taught in the scriptures sure Right. I, I do think it is, in a sense, an outrageous claim. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's what Paul kind of really leans into in some of the New Testament scriptures. He's like, that God's glory is not, is in, in some sense shown all the more by his willingness to humble himself in such a way. Curiously, this language, um, Muhammad, you brought up of mountains crumbling. Okay, this is going to be picking and choosing among scriptures. Here we go. But uh, um, So that's a Quranic description. Interestingly, in the book of Daniel, there is some language of, you know, the small stone that will crumble, you know, the huge, um, but what is it, a statue or like a, um, yeah, the sculpture of, uh, that represents basically human empires, right? Yeah, these, the, the these, statue with the, yeah, these, the head of gold. These things the crumbling. Silver. Um, and, you know, within Christianity, that stone is understood to be Christ. It is, in a sense, this humble and extremely outrageous thing that really shakes things up. But anyway, that's, that's just my, that's just, you know, what that got me thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I mean, this is a really interesting conversation. There's, so many different ways it could go. Um, you guys have a specific direction you wanted to go. We don't have that much time left. One question that came to me is, I mean, suppose, you know, your average Columbia student were listening to this. We are on Columbia's campus. Different off-the-wall questions might come up, right? Um, here's a question. Why is God male? I'm curious. Um, why, is, why do we speak of him as he in all these ways? Um, I guess I'll go first. Um, 
The Quran was revealed in Arabic. Okay. And perhaps, I don't know if this is similar cases with the other languages that the other scriptures were revealed with. But um, it's, it's not male. Like I said yeah. <laughs> earlier, <laughs> there's nothing like him. We, don't, we can't relate anything that we see in the human uh, design and the human flaw and attribute that or even compare it to God. God is transcendent in his majesty, but at the same time, I don't want it to be like a deistic approach, but he is ever present and uh, so intricate in his workings, right? The reason why we say he or his, and I thought this was actually the case in, in English uh, uh, grammar, literature, whatever, as well as that um, in Arabic, huwa, um, translated most directly to he, could either reference he or can reference um, or can be like a gender neutral uh, uh, pronoun. So there's not, it's in the Quran, there's nothing to suggest that huwa means or it suggests any masculinity. Um, there's, there's nothing of the sort. It's not male. <laughs> I think very similarly uh, how I, I think it was in my opening remarks. Um, I noted that there was this distinction between um, physicality and spirituality. And uh, like you said, there's n you can't really confine it to uh, confine God to gender, which is a very physical um, expression. Um, and then similarly, um, in Hebrew, uh, in which the Torah is written, uh, you have um, the male pronouns, one of which, funnily enough, is who. Um, and that would be the default if you were trying to. Uh, find a gender neutral or uh, a pronoun that would um, uh, sort of be appropriate for multiple genders. I think uh, to go off of that, um, why Christians would and always have referred to God with masculine pronouns would not be just the sense of him being distinctly male in a biological way, but that that is the way um, he... He was revealed himself and has speak, spoken about himself, and that um, gender neutral, especially in English, is more of an inanimate object generally or without rationality. So you might call an animal it or a stone it, but God is supremely animate. He is uh, he's very rational. <laughs> he is... Um, perfect rationality itself intellect and that he is not going to it would be confusing and strange to refer to him as an it and that there is also an aspect where christ is an incarnated man physically a, a male man uh like physically male being so there is that within christianity as That's well right. interesting interesting yeah um Again, we only have a few minutes, but uh, I mean, did you guys have thoughts or questions? I, I mean, in the limited time we have left, I don't want to throw the problem of evil out there, which is often <laughs> something people bring up. But I mean, if you have great, you know, solutions to the problem of evil right, right within the next few minutes, so, that would be great. Or I mean, any other thoughts? Yeah. I guess I've got a, a question for you two mm -hmm. where... Um, within the Old Testament, you do have God taking on human form where Jacob wrestles with God. And uh, 
um, you have certain instances where God seems to have condescended himself to relate to mankind um, as a man um, and is perceived as a man. Um, what I, I guess from the Islamic perspective, is yeah, that a this, corruption? This is in, blasphemous. Uh, it is a corruption in the, in the Torah. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, before, I guess before you answer, let me just clarify. Yeah, we don't have, we have many, we do believe in all the prophets and messengers, like I said earlier, but we do believe a lot of the stories about these prophets and messengers have been either changed or corrupted in some ways. Like we don't believe at all that, uh, for example, Lot, or in Arabic, Lut, peace be upon him, um, could do any evil such as ancestry, which I believe is the case um, in the Bible or Old Testament, and or that God could descend as a man and lose against a prophet in a wrestling match, which I also read um, in the Old Testament. Um, right. I think that uh, when Jacob wrestled with, he received the name Israel, which translates to uh, wrestles with God. Um, I believe he wrestled with an angel. It wasn't with God himself. Um, and uh, like Muhammad was mentioning earlier, we sort of have a distinction between humans, angels, and then uh, God himself. Um, and I'm not sure what other instances you may be referring to, but um, I think that there's an important distinction between God and godliness. And um, it's a hard distinction to capture, but godliness is sort of the... Um, infinite emanation of God um, through which sort of there was a contraction that led to creation and uh, sort of had, can even if you f follow the philosophical line of argument um, uh, that contraction sort of uh, conceals God in the natural world uh, and that is what today uh, makes it sort of the separation between um, natural and um, godliness, but that it still exists in that sphere. It's just sort of has this concealment, uh, which is an element of the chesed I was talking about. It was an additional attribute called gavura, which is stringency. Like if a, uh, if a, you were to tell a child not to play with a knife, you're doing out of love and kindness, even though you're prohibiting him to do something. So I guess one quick question about that. Um, that would that conception of creation as an emanation from God, that's definitely not considered orthodox within Christianity. Um, it's a, it's, there's a much stricter like division, I think, between creator and creature. And if I understand correctly, that's more from Kabbalah, right? Myst more mystical thought. Is that Correct. a universal belief in Judaism, that um, creation is an emanation from a contraction? Um, it comes from more mystical teachings, but um, I think that it is the primary explanation. I don't want to speak out of turn. It is sort of the explanation that I was most uh, exposed to. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't want to um, overstate or um, perhaps misstate uh, uh, the significance it has, but that is sort of the um, doctrinal uh, sort of explanation of creation that I've sort of 
been exposed to the most and that sort of resonates the most. I, mean, I do want to say, although like we have our differences, living in such a secular and uh, anti-religious, you know, maybe city or uh, at least institution, it's good to have people who at least uh, associate with religion and, you know, use it as a guiding way of life. Sure. Um, it's, yeah, I mean, there is so much more to say. Um, you know, I mean, we were never going to get to everything, I think. But, uh, yeah, um, I think, you know, this, all this talking about God, how he relates to his creation really sets up well for, I guess, where this series is going to go. But I really hope it sets up, you know, more conversations. And, you know, for, to anyone listening, I hope this has really been thought-provoking. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the Good Fight podcast um, is will keep going this semester. Um, you can find us at, at the Good Fight Pod on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, if you have any questions, any any comments, you can reach us at uh, witnessthegoodfight at gmail.com. But again, uh, Mohammed, Zach, Rory, thank you guys so much for being on the podcast today. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at, at the Good Fight Pod, and reach us with any questions or comments at witnessthegoodfight at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for listening to The Good Fight.